it's uh, quite common to hear people say things like, uh, I need to find myself. Or sometimes you might hear someone say, I just don't know who I am anymore. And of course, they're speaking about the issue of identity. And it's a very important one. And those statements might seem strange to us as if we somehow can become detached from our own selves or our identity. But um, the truth is, is that we do come into this world lost. And we uh, do uh, often suffer from uh, confusion when it comes to our, our identity. And we do need to find ourselves. But the Bible would instruct us that we need to find ourselves in Christ. That we need to um, discover what it means to be found by him and then find ourselves in him. Last week we looked at James and uh, uh, James is one of what we call the general epistles. This week uh, we're looking at another one of those general epistles. We're looking at 1 Peter. First uh, Peter chapter 2 to be more precise. And I know we're looking at the second chapter of Galatians, the second chapter of, of uh, James, second chapter of Peter, and I'm not sure why they're doing the whole second chapter thing. I think it's because this is their second time through the curriculum. They've gone through the whole, uh, Gospel Project has gone through the whole uh, uh, Bible once, and this is their second time through. And uh, since we're jumping in uh, to the use of the curriculum in these days, uh, we're doing a lot of chapter two uh, studies, which is fine. Um, you meet Peter on the pages of the, of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's a fascinating character. He rises to a position of influence uh, within the, uh, that early apostolic band. He uh, is in many ways the leader of the band uh, after Jesus' departure. And Peter is uh, a fascinating study. If you ever get the chance to read through the um, uh, gospel accounts and just look at all the references to Peter. and um, Some of us identify with Peter a lot because he was somebody who, who was quick to step out and quick to put his foot in his mouth. And both of those things, can, they, they, they can be a, a great asset or a liability. It can be a great strength and also a weakness. And Peter is, is quite, a, quite, a, quite, a, quite a character. Peter walked on water. How many people can say they've done that? But most important of all, more important than anything else, Peter got to see the resurrected Jesus. And when he wrote... Like all of the other apostles, that's what he wrote about. So along with their proclaiming of the good news, of the eyewitness accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles also wrote letters. And some of those letters were inspired by God. And as such, they made it into what we refer to as our New Testaments. And so as we read the different letters, uh, we find... Uh, uh, some differences based on personality and experiences and things like that and writing styles and all kinds of things but we also find some amazing foundational similarities between James and Paul and Peter and John and the others 
And uh, so today, as we look at Second Peter or First Peter chapter two, rather, we'll see some uh, some differences for sure, but we'll see those those uh, same foundational themes that we've seen in all of the uh, writing of all the of of the apostles. So let's go to chapter two of First Peter, and uh, well, let's actually let's start with chapter one because I think it would be important to to take a look there for context, some context of chapter 2. Context is really important when you're studying scripture, when you're understanding scripture seeking to. And so Peter addresses his uh, letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter's reference here to the exiles of the dispersion, uh, that's not the Jewish uh, dispersion or diaspora that we uh, James was referring to. And uh, this rather is a reference to, uh, to Gentiles. Uh, Peter's writing primarily to Gentile believers, and there's a number of reasons why we understand uh, P- Peter's uh, letter here in that way, and we don't want to take the time to get into them all this morning because we don't have that kind of time, but, uh, but Peter's writing about those who are sojourners and exiles in this world. He picks that up in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And let's just take a look at verses 3 through 7 here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the writing of the apostles is consistent with their proclamation. And what they proclaimed was the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have, which results from faith in him. And then in verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible, uh, with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Um, interesting, he says there, though you have not seen him, you loved him. You love him. Peter is writing to, uh, to uh, believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That was a long ways from Jerusalem, long ways from the, the, the land of Palestine, long way from Israel. And, uh, and so these people would not have been people that would have seen Christ. Um, they wouldn't have seen him uh, before his crucifixion. They wouldn't have seen him after his resurrection. Peter's writing to them as an apostle, and he's saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him. Now, that's a really important uh, theme of the apostles. Um, and it's important for us to understand the role of the apostles in their testimony as eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Over in the Gospel of John, John talks about uh, Thomas after the, Jesus was risen. 
uh, he showed himself to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And then it says, the text says, eight days later, this is in uh, John chapter uh, 20, uh, he says, eight days later, Jesus appeared to the, the disciples again, and Thomas was there. And Jesus said to Thomas, you know, reach out your hand, um, touch my side, showed him the nail uh, scars in his hands. And Thomas, you will recall, said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to Thomas, you, you believe because you see? And then he said this, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Um, when Jesus was praying in, in uh, um, John 17, it's recorded there, he says, as he's praying for his disciples, he says, and I do not only pray for these, but I pray for all those who will believe because of their message. And of course, in John, later on in John 20, uh, John says, many other signs Jesus did, which in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you might uh, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing, you will have life in his name. So from these references, we understand that, that the role of the apostles, whether they were proclaiming verbally or whether they were writing, was to be the officially ordained representatives commissioned by Christ to uh, take the message of the gospel to uh, a lost world. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by what? Hearing. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says what? Faith is I'm sorry, what's that? What? Yeah. I got King James and NIV and ESV running through my head at the same time here. It's also about the evidence of things unseen. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Things unseen. So that whole idea that, and you and I are in the same boat as these people that, that uh, uh, Peter's writing to here. You haven't seen the resurrected Jesus physically, bodily, with your eyes. But you believe. Why do you believe? It's the testimony of the chosen apostles of Christ through their proclamation and through their writing. Uh, and we're very thankful for those, those writings uh, even here today as we read this. It's, we have an incredible, incredible privilege. And so what is it all about then? In verses uh, 8 and 9, he says, through, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what Peter's writing about. He's writing about the gospel and the, how the gospel is that by which we are saved. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, and verse 9, 
uh, obtaining the uh, outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, uh, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Going back here into the Old Testament uh, times, he's saying that look forward to that good news about salvation. And then over in verse 12, if you look there, it says, uh, it was revealed to them that they were serving uh, not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels look uh, long uh, to look into. And then in verse 13, it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. So everything that follows after verse 13 is based on the nature of our relationship with Christ. So as he goes on, verse 14 through 16, he talks about be holy because I am holy. We, why, would, why would you live a holy life? There's only one reason. At the end of the day, it's because you are related to God through Christ and he is holy. Because our identity is fixed by that relationship. Who we are is because of a relationship with him. And how we live grows out of that relationship. So he says in, in verse 17, uh, if you call on him as father. And again, that's that relationship that we have because of the gospel. Determines how we live who we are, and how we live. And then uh, in uh, verse 18 and 19, it says we are ransomed, ransomed or, or redeemed or bought back with the precious blood of Christ. So we belong to him. When we think about identity, belonging is very, very important. Who do you belong to is just another way of saying, who are you? And we, 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 know, we know this, and we, we, um, I think we understand it almost intuitively, because when, when you try to explain to somebody who you are, you inevitably start talking about your family, especially if you're from the Maritimes, because you're related to everybody. <laughs> you know, oh, you're so-and-so's brother, or, you're, oh, you, oh, yeah, I know your dad, or... See, those relationships determine uh, our identity. And here, Peter's saying that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Bought back, paid for. Bought, bought back from, from perdition and destruction into a relationship with Christ uh, by, the by his precious uh, blood. And then uh, he goes on from there. And then, so as we come up to chapter 2, verse 1... Uh, we have this little word, uh, so, um, in English. It's uh, un in Greek, they tell me. Um, and it's an inferential coordinating conjunction. You probably knew that already. Um, in chapter 1, verse 13, the word therefore... That's a different word. But it's also an inferential coordinating conjunction. Because there's different kinds of inferential coordinating conjunctions. 
And that's why the ESV uses therefore in chapter 1, verse 13, and so in chapter 2, verse 1, because they're two different words, even though they're both inferential coordinating conjunctions. We do that in English too. Like the word therefore and the word so. So it's the exact same thing in English as it is in Greek. Hallelujah. For once, something is exactly the same in Greek as it is in English. So the next time somebody says, can you, do you understand Greek? You can say, yes. As a matter of fact, I do. I understand inferential coordinating conjunctions. Now, that seems really fascinating to you. You're, one, you're along with Don up there. You're one of the 5% of the people in this world that are word nerds. And I'm in that group too because I love, I love words. But for those of you who are saying this is dry as toast without any butter on it, let me give you a little illustration of how significant this can be. If I were to say to you, because you don't think you, you, you understand what I'm saying, but you understand it actually so well that you do it without even thinking. If I were to say to you, I have no issues with you, you might say, well, that's nice. That's a full sentence. But if I were to stick a conjunction in front of it, or if I were to stick an inferential coordinating conjunction in front of it, it could be something like this. I have no issues with numbskulls. Therefore, I have no issues with you. It kind of changes it just a bit, doesn't it? Because I'm inferring something. I'm using an inferential, coordinating conjunction to infer that you are a, what? A numbskull. You got it. What's important here is that we understand that uh, Peter, and not just Peter, but Paul and John and James and all the other biblical writers, and you and I too for that matter, when we are reasoning and thinking and learning and teaching and understanding, we need to understand things in relationship and what is true because other things are true. Because that's the coordinating inferential conjunction part. He's basically saying because these things are true, so or therefore these things are true. And that's really, really important as we're studying Scripture. You know, we do it, we do it kind of um, almost intuitively. You know, when you're learning a language, when you grow up in a language, you learn it so, it gets so ingrained in you that you, that you communicate without even realizing you're using all these super technical literary devices. And there's poor... Uh, <laughs> uh, Poor Bernardo and Rosa back there uh, struggling to learn how to speak English. And you're all sitting there like, 
you have no problems with it at all because you, you've grown up in it and you do it without even realizing it. But when you're learning a new language or when you're studying uh, a carefully worded uh, correspondence, we have to be a whole lot more intentional about it. We've got to really think about it. We've got to follow the line of thought. So uh, the old um, colloquial expression I heard years and years ago goes like this. When you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. So if you can't remember inferential whatever, coordinating conjunction, remember this. When you see a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. Because it's important. Because these things are the basis of our faith. You will not do well in your living if you don't understand the foundational truths of your faith. You just won't. Because when, I, because when something is foundational, you build on top of it. And if you don't have the foundation to build on, well, you know what Jesus had to say about that, I think you probably do. It's not, it's not good. So everywhere we go, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. How many of you can quote that? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Talks about renewing your mind. That's right. In the King James, it says, I beseech thee, therefore, brethren. In the NIV, it says, I urge you, therefore, brothers. But that conjunction, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What mercies of God? The first 11 chapters of Romans. Because all of these things are true, so these should be true. If this is true, then how should you live? What does Romans 12 say? Well, he says, uh, present yourselves living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How is that even possible? Because of all the mercies of God. Because of everything he's just talked about. And then he goes on to talk about love. Among other things. Really, really, really important practical stuff. But true and accessible and applicable because of the, the, uh, the truths that he has established in the first 11 chapters of his book. And it's the same, the same thing with Peter, and it's the same thing with James, and, and it's, uh, it's how, the, um, how the rules of language work, and it's how the apostles wrote to us, and it's how we need to study uh, the Word of God so that we can grow in these things. Because we do need to grow uh, in these things. We need to grow in our understanding. We need to be able to grasp uh, these great truths. How great a truth is this, that Jesus Christ shed his blood for you? How great a truth is this, that Jesus Christ rose visibly, physically, bodily from the grave? How significant as is it? What are the ramifications of it? What does it change in your life that that actually occurred? When you believe, what happens? Everything changes. 
It changes everything. These great truths change everything. And so, so this is how the apostles uh, wrote the message and proclaimed the message. They proclaimed the good news, and then they talked about the implications. That's the therefores and the sows and the because ofs that we read throughout Peter and, and James and John and so on. So our text today begins with, uh, with that uh, inferential coordinating conjunction. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Just look back to verse 22. Have, uh, of one, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, uh, sincere brotherly love. You see there the connection between our relationship, renewed relationship with Christ and his, the cleansing that he brings and the love that we have in our hearts for one another. That's important when you look at chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice. So, therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The idea is, is you can't really grasp and understand and receive and, and accept and experience and know the love of God in Christ and just turn right around and be a dirtbag. It doesn't work that way. That's the, the line of thought. Just prior to the text, I want, just, I want to talk about one more piece of context here. Um, just after that. Just prior to, so put away all malice and all deceit. Look, look back at verse uh, uh, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass and all glories like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You know, we, we often talk about being born again of the spirit of God. Here Peter says, he talks about being born again, born of, by the, again by the word of God. And... Uh, and it, it, it is significant, uh, isn't it? We rightly speak of being born again by the Spirit of God because Jesus talks about being born of the Spirit. Uh, but Peter talks about being born, uh, by, again, of the Word of God. And, and one of the reasons for that is because we can never disassociate the presence and power of God from the Word of God and the will of God. And I'm going to say that again because it's really important for us. We can never disassociate the presence and power of God from the word of God and the will of God because the spirit of God is the author of the word of God and he will not speak or act in a way that is inconsistent with what he has already said. I hope you're getting that because that's really important when it comes to discerning and having discernment 
in our lives. He, the Spirit of God, will not speak or act in a way that is inconsistent with what he has already said. Why? Well, look what it says. All flesh is as grass and all glory like the flower of grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It doesn't change. God's not going to change something he said. That's uh, important and important in context. So, verse 1 of chapter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What I'd like to do is just keep reading down through verse, right down through verse 17, but we're not going to try, I'm not going to try to comment on all that. But it is in the, it is in the passage uh, set out in the curriculum, so I want to read through and then uh, just, I want to try to restrict my comments for the rest of the, our time, mostly to those few verses there in uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through uh, 10. Uh, so verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacri- uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Reminds me of Romans chapter 12, present yourselves as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I lay, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined uh, to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, and we're going to stop right there, actually, because time is, is rushing by. And I and I uh, I want to I want to at least make sure that I have an opportunity to comment on some of those verses that <laughs> that we just um, we just read there. Um, cornerstone. The term is an architectural term, and it be, can be translated cornerstone. It can also be translated keystone or capstone. If you're reading from the NIV, it uses both cornerstone and capstone there in that passage. Um, Literally, the Greek words mean head of the corner. Um, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the foundation. Uh, it was the starting point and the reference point for everything else. The capstone was a crowning stone which completed a building or a wall. And the keystone is that stone, if you look at an arch-style construction, it's that stone, that keystone that's right in the top center that basically completes the structure and also provides the strength for the entire structure. So um, if you look at the many references in Scripture to this, uh, this Greek uh, phrase, uh, which is kephalon uh, geneus. It occurs um, a, a number of times in the Old Testament, in the, uh, the Greek Septuagint, uh, and in the New Testament. And in most cases, it can be translated either cornerstone or capstone or keystone. 
Uh, and, and when you think about it, Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. And so all of those translations work. However, when you come to uh, the, uh, the text here, it pretty, pretty strongly leans towards the translation cornerstone. I think you'll agree with me on that. Um, take a check out these references, 1 Corinthians 3, 10, 11. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can be lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Peter calls us strangers and aliens, but he's talking about here. When Paul talks about no longer being strangers and aliens, he's talking about us being brought into the family of God, and that's the difference. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then... Uh, Peter says we're living stones, like Christ is a living stone, he is the cornerstone, so we are living stones being built up in this, this uh, spiritual house. And Paul talks about the same thing in the last uh, couple of verses there, Ephesians 2, it says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. So it's the same, uh, the same basic idea that Paul talks about, Peter talks about, that Jesus is the cornerstone and he's building a spiritual house. He's the cornerstone and we are like living stones. Now the thing about a cornerstone is this. It's, the, it's that first prominent stone in the foundation of a structure that's placed and then all of the other stones are placed in relation to that one stone. Uh, Jim... Lockhart's not here, or he can maybe share his insights as a, as a stone, as a as a mason um, bricklayer on this. But but and I don't and I don't claim to be any kind of expert when it comes to that. But that's the basic idea, and the significance of that is whatever stone uh, it gets placed in a structure, it gets placed precisely in accordance with or in relation to that that cornerstone. And the analogy for you and I is significant that our place, our position, and even our identities are determined by Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So as I mentioned at the top, there's no shortage of people who are confused about their identity. But Christians, we should know who we are. We should know who we are as believers in Christ. Um, verse 7, 7 and 8 in the passage says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Ironically, the one the world absolutely has no use for at all is the one that defines our existence, establishes our identity, and determines our destinies. All the other stones that aren't related to Christ are rejected and placed outside of the construction. They're not a part of that spiritual house. The ones who reject Christ end up themselves as rejected. Interestingly, Jesus himself refers to the, one of those Old Testament passages about the cornerstone, and he says this in Matthew 21. 
He said this to the religious leaders. He said, uh, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the quote. And then, he te- and then Jesus says to them, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I want you to look at verse, um, verse 9 and 10. And then we're going to stop with, uh, uh, we're not going to go any farther in, second, in First Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those first two words, but you, third word, are, but you are, you are. This is what you are. This is who you are. He's talking, he's talking identity. In verses four and five, he employs this tremendous analogy of a building. Analogies are great. They're helpful. They're instructive. He said, but, but in the end, an, an analogy can only go so far. He says, Peter says, you are like living stones. But people are not stones. People are people. And as people, this is who you are. He's not talking analogy anymore here. He's being completely, completely direct. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself as a priest or not. I think we have been caused a lot to think of ourselves as uh, living sacrifices and what it means to be a living sacrifice. Um, you know, to to, uh, to give of yourself and to to you know to lay your your life down in service to others and service to Christ. I don't know if you've ever given much thought to what it means to be a priest. But according to Scripture, you you are. If you if you know Christ as your Savior, that makes you a priest. And just like Jesus was both the sacrifice for for all sin for all time, and the great High Priest, so we are called to be living sacrifices and to be priests of God. What does a priest do? Uh, it's a subject that could take a lot of time, but let me just um, share a couple of verses with you. Hebrews chapter 4. You might be familiar with this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, mark that word, with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is how uh, Jesus in his high priestly function ministers to you and to I, and to, to me, you and to me. Um, but, but don't let the chapter uh, break there throw you off because look at the, the chapter 5, Hebrews verse 1. And two, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. I I mark that statement. 
because that is an incredible statement. To act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's what a priest does. He goes on to say, um, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We could talk about that. Uh, we want. He, he, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. There's that sympathy and identification thing going on there. It's, it's, it's exciting and scary at the same time, and it's honoring and it's humbling. Um, but you and I, and I'm talking to people who have entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to be priests, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, I want you to think about that. Just think about it. To act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, somebody has said that a priest um, represents people to God. A prophet represents God to people. And that's probably fair. That's probably a fair uh, statement. Um, but you will notice... Um, there is a, a distinct role of, uh, of intercession here. We're told uh, in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter 2 that we're not just a priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood, which means that we're not only priests, but we're also kings. And he says there in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse um, 9, that we are a royal priesthood, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. So I would say to you uh, that we are kings, priests, and prophets. And that we not only represent men to God, but we represent God to men. And we reign with Christ and we serve as this great servant king, Jesus, in this world as we represent him. Paul said you, that we are ambassadors for Christ. Think about that. Because our identity is in him. We only do these things always only through Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that. It says, uh, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We can't do any of this in any way in and of ourselves. We don't have, we're not, we're not kingly stuff. We're not royal stuff. He is. But he brings us into that when we live in him and we live out of the identity that we have, have in him. So he goes on to say in, those la in that last verse there that we're going to look at, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. In other words, at one time you had no idea who you were. But now you know exactly who you are. Once you had known, not known mercy. Oh, you might have known the concept of mercy, but he's not talking about concepts. 
He's talking about experiencing mercy. What does he say? He says, but now you have received mercy. It's not just something we know about. It's something that we experience. We have personally experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ in our lives. The mercy of God, which sounds a lot like what James was saying last uh, when we looked last uh, week in, um, in James chapter 2, when he's talking about favoritism, and it all comes back to, to, uh, to mercy. We have a mediatorial ministry. You know that passage in Titus that says there's one mediator between God and man, the man in Christ Jesus? If you are in Christ, then you share in that mediatorial ministry. You act on behalf of men in relation to God. And you act on behalf of God in relation to men. And probably the only thing that would outweigh the immense uh, privilege of that is the immense responsibility that goes along uh, with it. Everything we have and are is because of him. Somebody said that uh, mercy is another word for, for grace. And somebody said that mercy is when you, uh, grace is when you get what you don't deserve. You know, it's a gift. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And that too is probably an accurate statement. Grace is when I get what I receive, what I uh, do not deserve. Mercy is when I do not receive what I really do deserve. They are flip sides of the same coin. And you and I have a ministry of mercy that we've been, that is ours because of who we are in Christ. Um, I just, in, in, in closing, I want uh, you to cast your eyes back to verse 2. Um, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's talking about identity here and who we are. You know, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a, a, a people who belong, uh, God has chosen for his own possession. He's talking about identity. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, he talks about babies, little babies, um, little nursing babies. Fascinating. Fascinating to, to watch. A little wee baby just longing for that um, milk that is life to them. And he says, you need to be like that so you can grow up into this salvation. These things uh, don't uh, come just like that. Uh, you know, even this identity thing. Really, really, uh, really putting down roots deep into who, who you are as a child of God, who you are as somebody who knows and belongs to Christ. 
It's, it's not just like that. It's something that we are called to grow, to grow into or to grow up into. We grow out of these truths. They're foundational and we grow up into. We grow uh, on the foundation that is Christ and we grow up into him to become all that he wants for us um, to be. You've probably seen this uh, uh, more than once floating around the internet. Um, And uh, it's true. At least if you know Christ as your Savior, it's true. It's all about who you are in Him. Who we are in Him. It's the identity issue. Knowing where you come from. Knowing what you're made of because you know who made you. And knowing who made you to be what he made you to be. Not by virtue of your own merit. But all based in his grace and his mercy. But yours and mine nonetheless. The inheritance, Peter talks about chapter 1. The inheritance reserved for us. All because of Christ. But knowing that, knowing that and then living out of it, because this is true, because of who I am, this is how I live. Remember that scene in the Old Testament where uh, in the book of Genesis where Joseph is in uh, Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife, who was a woman who lacked discretion, made a pass at him, tried to get him to, tried to seduce him, and Joseph responded and said, I can't do that. Why? Why do we do what we do? Why do we live the way we live? What is the reason? Do you have that reason? Because if you do not have a sufficient reason, you will not live the way the apostles talk about all of those, all those things. All of those, those things in there, those good things in your New Testament about how you should live your life. You won't do it. I, I won't live like that unless I'm living out of these, these, these foundational realities. Uh, who, who, who are you? Have you been born again? That's new identity. Born again, not only of the Spirit of God, but born again by the Word of God that lives and abides forever and never changes. There's a certainty to it. There's a rock, solid, foundational, cornerstone quality to it that will never move you. Because your life will be built on that rock and your life will be built on those realities. It's the realities of the gospel. And it's about living out of the gospel. And it all determines who you are, which determines how you live, I'm going to ask you to stand. I've gone over again.
Excuse me. So um, indulge me for just another moment or two, if you would, because we want to pray. Now, just before we, I ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, because that's what we always do. Um, I want for us to just pause for a moment and think, okay? I want you to think. Do I know Christ as my Savior and Lord of my life? Is he my cornerstone? Have I accepted him or have I rejected him? That's the first question. Every one of us needs to make sure that we've answered that question. Because to reject the cornerstone is to end up rejected. And that's in the passage. It's really, really important. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, if you have, can say, honestly say here today, yes, I know Christ. I have accepted him. as uh, I've, I trust in him as the one who uh, has mercy and grace for me. Question then is, am I living out of that identity? Am I living out of it? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this great group of people this morning, the tremendous opportunity we have to spend this time together in your word and uh, to be challenged by, by these great truths. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for uh, all the apostles and for um, sending them out and, and giving them a gospel for us. And Lord, that we, can, and we can, that we can hear and believe, that we can read and believe. Lord, we, um, I just ask for any who may be here this morning who have not, are not sure. They're, not, they're either not saved or they're not sure. I pray, Lord, that they, even today that they would realize that, that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God and responding. It doesn't come by seeing. It comes uh, by hearing and responding. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant grace to them that they might respond today to you and that they might accept you and they might say to you, Lord, I believe. Please save me. Take me and make me your own. And Lord, for those of us who have, have done that, Lord, uh, challenge us this morning, Lord, with these, uh, uh, these thoughts that we might build our lives on the foundation, the only foundation that has been laid, that is Jesus, Jesus Christ, um, our Savior and our Lord, that we might live out of those great truths and that our lives would be different because of what you have done and what you are wanting to do in us, even this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.